Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we work to help end the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real-life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates as we debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, frauds, scams, and multi-level marketing. Join us all month for stories of true crime, true con, and urban legends from around the world. Happy Halloween, Huns! Hey, Hunbots and Hunbros. I am really excited because I am gearing up this coming week to go to Dallas to be at Obsessed Fest. Uh, I know there are going to be some of you there that I get to meet. I'm really excited. And also I get to meet today's guest uh, and next week's guest too. And a couple of other people who have been on the show and people who will be coming on the show in the future as well. I am really excited mostly to just meet some of you, meet some of my podcast friends and just have a really good time. So this is where we start to get into the really sort of nitty gritty true crime that you might normally find on other podcasts. We're going to be telling some pretty dark stories, so there are going to be some trigger warnings and some content warnings coming up, so please make sure that you listen to the housekeeping so you have a heads up on some of those things. Today's guest is Tara Newell. You might know her from her podcast, Survivor Squad. You may know her from hearing her story on the podcast or the TV show, Dirty John. Tara is incredible. She has become a really good friend, one of my favorite things about working in this space. And because I'm telling ghost stories and urban legends and things like that in the beginning of these shows, I wanted to reach out and ask my guests what their favorite stories were, because I didn't want to add anything that's additionally triggering to them. Uh, And Tara's answer was that she'd always been fascinated in the story of Bloody Mary. And so I said, okay, let's dive into the history of Bloody Mary. So in just a moment, you are going to hear about the history of Bloody Mary. It was actually pretty interesting. It was actually pretty interesting to sort of go down an urban legend rabbit hole and to answer some questions that I have always had about Bloody Mary, because I, like most of you, have probably done the ritual in a mirror at a slumber party at some point in your life. And so it was really cool to kind of bring it full circle and to talk about that. I want to thank our newest Patreon members, Helena Ann Hiddle and Ann Davis. I really appreciate the support. I also want to say thank you for so much response to not only the Gina episode, but the Billy McFarland episode and really all of the fire content that I've been making lately on social media and on the podcast. It is really cool to also have like my weird fascination kind of come full circle and for you guys to enjoy it as well. There have been people that have already reached out to me, so there's possibly going to be more fire content in the future. Obviously, more fire to content on TikTok and Instagram. If that's something that you're interested, please make sure that you're following along. And again, if you were a victim or you have a story to add about any of the things or any of the topics that we talk about, I would love to hear from you. So on to the content warnings for this episode specifically. If you are unfamiliar with the story of Dirty John, it is about John Meehan, who is a narcissist who is stalking Tara and her family. And it is, it's a lot. So I just want you to know that this is a pretty heavy episode. We talk about stalking and being attacked and self-defense. So please, please use caution when listening to this tale. And please go ahead and, and we also talk about ethical true crime. And we also talk about ethical true crime, which I think is a really interesting topic. And I have learned so much about it in the last six months and have adjusted my content to be as ethical to victims as possible as well. I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. And I will see you guys on Wednesday. Today, we're going to talk about the urban legend of Bloody Mary. And I'm sure that me saying that name conjured up memories of adolescent slumber parties and visions of pop culture references that are so prevalent in film and TV. There have been several Bloody Mary movies, and she's been featured in episodes of Charmed, Supernatural, The X-Files, American Horror Story, South Park, Teen Titans Go, and Regular Show. I mean, even Lady Gaga wrote a song called Bloody Mary. Sometimes she's a ghost, sometimes a phantom or a spirit conjured to reveal the future or seek revenge. 
And in doing research for the story, it was really hard to find the true origins of the rituals and the identification of Bloody Mary herself, but I did my best. Historically, the ritual was to walk up a flight of stairs backwards, holding a candle and a hand mirror in a darkened house. As you gaze into the mirror, you're supposed to be able to see your future partner's face. But there was also a chance that you could see a skull instead, which would indicate that you would die before you would ever get the chance to marry. In the more familiar rituals of today, Bloody Mary appears to individuals or groups who invoke her name in an act of catoptromancy, which is divination with a reflection from a mirror or a crystal ball. And this is often done by chanting her name into a mirror placed in a darkened room. The name must be uttered a specific number of times, and Bloody Mary can appear as a corpse, witch, or ghost that can be friendly or evil and is sometimes seen covered in blood. The lore says that Mary might scream at you, curse you, strangle you, steal your soul, drink your blood, scratch your eyes out, yada yada yada. But one question remains. Is Bloody Mary real? Some people think so. Stories have gone back for ages using different variations on the name, like Bloody Mary, Bloody Bones, Hell Mary, Mary Worth, Mary Worthington, Mary Wales, Mary Johnson, Mary Lou, and Mary Jane. There's a lot of debate on her true identification and if she was based on a real woman. A number of figures have been rumored to be candidates for Mary, including Mary I of England, who had around 300 religious Protestants burned at the stake, which earned her the nickname Bloody Mary. There's also Elizabeth Bathory, a 17th century Hungarian countess who tortured and killed roughly 660 girls and women, bathed in their blood, and was accused of being a vampire. Sometimes she's a random woman from an urban legend who died in a local car accident where her face was hideously mutilated. And then we have Mary Worth who's either a woman who killed slaves who were escaping the South via the Underground Railroad, or a woman who was burned at the stake during the Salem witch trials for dabbling in the black arts, which was one of the most common allegations that I found. According to the tales, many people in a nondescript village in a faraway place already believed that Mary Worth was a witch. She lived in the forest in a very small cabin and was well known around the local village for selling herbal remedies and various tinctures. Locals were very wary and didn't get too close, out of fear that she would curse them, and those who actually chose to use her remedies were often shunned for partaking in the witchcraft. When small girls started going missing, the people in the village looked for them everywhere, and the more suspicious town folk ventured out toward Mary's cabin to see what they could find. Mary denied all knowledge of the girls' disappearances, but the families were skeptical because her usually haggard appearance had drastically changed and she appeared more youthful. Legend has it that one night, the miller's daughter was captivated by a mysterious noise that only she could hear, and wandered off into the forest. Her mother lay in bed treating a very bad toothache with an herbal tincture that she had bought from Mary. Frightened, she shouted for her husband to go and follow their daughter and get her to come back home, but the efforts were to no avail, as it was almost as though she was following some unspoken and unseeing force. With the help of some of the townsfolk, they noticed that there was a light at the edge of the woods, and as they got closer, they noticed that Mary Worth was standing in the clearing next to a huge oak tree. In her hand was a wand, glowing with an unnatural light, pointed towards the miller's home, with the miller's daughter transfixed and walking toward it. Once everyone noticed what Mary was doing, they set upon her with pitchforks and guns, and when Mary saw, she broke the spell and made for the forest. But she wasn't quick enough for the farmer. He loaded his gun with silver bullets and shot her in the hip. She was caught, and they tied her to a stake, kicking, thrashing, and screaming. A bonfire was promptly built around her and lit, and as she was burning, she set a curse upon the townsfolk, telling them that if they ever dared to utter her name in a mirror, she would be back for them, and her spirit would return to wherever they summoned her to exact her revenge. Unfortunately for the townsfolk with missing children, when they got back to Mary's cottage and did a proper search, they found rows and rows of unmarked graves. It seemed like she had been using the blood of their children to make herself more youthful. Nowadays, Bloody Mary is summoned whenever squealing preteens get together for a slumber party. The ritual doesn't seem to discriminate with genders, as the he's, she's, gays, and they's that I asked had all admitted to performing the ritual at some point in their life. Birthday parties, Halloween, sleepovers. The precise requirements of the ritual vary. Some specify that the mirror must be illuminated by a single candle. In others, there must be a candle on each side. In some versions, the message to Mary is repeated by just one person, who is either a volunteer or selected by the others to summon up the mirror witch. Sometimes it's, I believe in Mary Worth, or Bloody Mary, I killed your baby. Other times it's just the chanting of Bloody Mary. The number of chants needed to fetch Mary also varies. Three times, seven times, thirteen times. Sometimes you'll summon the Bloody Mary ghost, a vengeful spirit, 
or even the devil himself. And unfortunately for you, she'll do something horrible, like take your soul, scratch your face off, strike or summon her dead, drive you mad, or leave claw marks all over your body. Maybe she'll leave your soul to burn, just like she was left to burn by the villagers. And to top it all off, you'll be subjected to an eternity trapped in a mirror. And while this is all in good fun for tricks and treats with your friends, some who have done a variation of the ritual swear that they saw something in the mirror before screaming and abandoning the dark room. So, how could that be? Well, first off, staring into a mirror in a dimly lit room for a prolonged period of time can cause one to hallucinate. Facial features may appear to melt, distort, disappear, and rotate, while other hallucinatory elements, such as animal features or strange faces, can appear. In a 2010 experiment, researcher Giovanni Caputo of the University of Urbino found that when people stare at their own reflections in a dimly lit room for an extended period of time, many of them experience an unusual phenomenon that he calls strange face illusion. Within a minute, participants in his study started to see other faces, distortions in their own faces, and even the appearance of monstrous beings in the mirror. It is believed to be a consequence of the brain's facial recognition system misfiring in a currently unidentified way. Other possible explanations for the phenomenon include illusions attributed to at least partially the perceptual effects of Troxler's fading, an optical illusion, and possibly apophenia, the tendency to perceive meaningful connections between unrelated things, or even self-hypnosis. One thing is for sure, I am not going to be testing any of these theories anytime soon. Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. It is October. It is true crime month. We are talking about a lot of different topics. And one of the topics that comes up for me is ethical true crime. And this is something that I've talked about before. And people have asked me, what does that mean? We're going to get into it today with my guest, Tara Newell. It is so wonderful to have you on the show. Welcome to Thank you so much for having me. So we're going to talk about a couple different things. I think maybe there's people listening who know your story. There's people listening who have maybe heard your name and they're like, how do I know who this person is? Your story kind of comes alive in a podcast that came out in 2017 called Dirty John. It came out right around the same time that I was leaving LuLaRoe. And so your story and your podcast or your family's podcast, really your family story helped me keep my mind off the fact that I was leaving a cult and was actually one of the things that like kind of helped me through surviving that whole couple few months of leaving was hearing your story and how badass you are. Just there's no spoilers here for anybody that doesn't know Tara's story, really. I mean, there, there probably will be a few, but just how badass you are. And then fast forward to literally a few months ago, and I get an email from you that's like, Do you want to come on my podcast? My name's Tara Newell. And I was just like, My jaw hit the floor. Like, I immediately let my friend know who also loved Dirty John. I was like, you will never guess who emailed me today. <laughs> so I was a huge fan of you and every like just all of it before you and I became friends. And that's my weird little connection to your story is you actually you didn't even know, but you were also another one of those voices and people that helped me get out of my situation and process it. Thank you for sharing that with me. And thank you for I, well, I'm just happy that was a part of the process in a good way. <laughs> Absolutely. It was a good process. It was like, wow. Yes. I mean, your story is just so unbelievably impactful, but it really was like, I can do hard things. I can get through this. You know, this is tough, but I can do this kind of moving forward. So let's just get it out of the way. It's not what we're here to talk about, but let's Get a little bit of this out of the way. You can tell us as much or as little about your story with John Meehan as you would like. And then we'll move on to ethical true crime and where you are in your life now. Okay. Well, I'll try to give like a overall synopsis within like five minutes, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really long story, guys. But so my mom meets a psychopath, not knowing he's a psychopath. She meets him on this website called Our Time. It's for seniors 
that are dating. And so she meets him. He's a doctor. He presents himself as the perfect person. They go to this restaurant called Houston's. It's an amazing night. But he goes back to her place and he like gets on the bed and he's just saying like, oh, this is the best feeling ever. And well, not exactly that, but, you know, just saying that this bed, it feels great, et cetera, et cetera. And my mom's the type of person thinking like, oh, she's inviting a guy up for like tea, literally tea and coffee, not hanky panky. So literally he made her feel uncomfortable She tells him, please get up off of my bed. He gets pissed at her and he like kind of goes off on her a little bit and then he leaves. And then a few days later, he calls and apologizes and then starts to love bomb her again. And she goes on this real romance with him. I don't think they went out of the country, but maybe like Cabo or something. But she just like, this guy is amazing to her. He gets her coffee every day. He spends so much time with her. My sister hates him. My sister's living with my mom at the time. And so my mom moves out to Balboa and I come out and I help my mom move. I hear what my sister's saying. But I also know that my sister can have a lot of opinions about my mom's boyfriend. So I came, met him, and there was the first time I met him, he was just trying to get a mattress on top of the car. My boyfriend at the time went to go help him, and it was just, like, not friendly energy, but we just, like, kind of brushed it off, like, oh, okay, we're moving, He like, you know, whatever. And then there was another thing that happened that we went to dinner. We got back and literally the child locks were on the car. And I asked John, oh, can you please let us out? The child locks are on. I say it a bit louder because he didn't respond. And he gets out of the car and goes upstairs. So I text my mom that, you know, he left us in the car. And so that was a weird first flag. And then as I went back to Vegas and then came back the week before Thanksgiving, I had an argument with him because I was having questions about John, about his job, where was his cars. He also went to the hospital that day and that was a sign of a drug addict to me. And also like, where's his cars? He's a doctor. Right. So he yelled some FUs at me. I yelled FUs at him back. And this is like all the short (laughs) version. And I left that day, didn't talk to my mom for a minute. And then we had to have a mediation session to do Christmas. And he showed up at Christmas not doing anything that the therapist said to do. And I became emotional, went to the garage, you know, had a mini episode Everyone thought that I was the person being irrational for a minute. And then my other brothers and sisters got on board as well. They hired a private investigator. We found out some information that he was using different social security card numbers. He had a storage unit in um, Cathedral City that had a refrigerator and a backpack with like stuff to make chloroform, zip ties, a children's book. Oh my God. Yes. My mom left him. That was March 7th, 2015. And then she got back together with him because he was able to bring her to different lawyers that convinced her that these were other John Meehans. Because he had lawyers like under his palm. He would get them disbarred if they disagreed with him or did anything against him. And he knew the game, so he was successful in that. Like, he got several lawyers disbarred. You know, he was a bad guy, but he was able to convince anyone. He was just so good at the game. The reason why I didn't have the same vibe is because I was someone that was going to buzz into my mom's ear and question him. And so he needed to isolate me. And so that's why he got into it with me. But if he wanted something from you... He could get it from you. My mom leaves him again on March 7, 2016. And then he ends up coming 
after me, August 20th, 2016. Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. They send you regular, personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report, and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete Me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet. And they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM code MLM. Head over to quince.com and grab yourself a little something something and support the show by supporting our sponsors. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and say hello to lightweight fabrics and classic styles. I have been taking advantage of the beautiful weather and getting outside for daily walks, and I cannot say enough good things about the Flow Knit High Rise Boyfriend Jogger from Quince. Seriously, running errands, doing school pickups, swinging by the farmer's market, or taking Jaja for a stroll around the lake, these bad boys are versatile. I love the deep pockets, the high waistband, and the internal hidden drawstring. They're quick drying, moisture wicking, antimicrobial, and the four-way stretch makes them so comfortable. They're made with 88% recycled polyester, and the Global Style Standard Certified Yarn dramatically lowers environmental impact by diverting landfill and ocean-bound plastic. Not to mention using recycled claims standard-approved dyeing, washing, and manufacturing processes with low water and eco-friendly dyes. They have become an absolute favorite, and you can save up to 59% off the high-end counterpart by shopping with Quince. Throw on a cotton modal scoop neck tee and some sneakers, and you've got a perfect, effortless outfit. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash MLM for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MLM to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MLM. There was a few things that led up to it, like he lit my mom's car on fire. He was stalking us, but like we could never prove it. He just like would always, he tried to contact me and actually like threatened me some stuff, but I couldn't see it until after my attack. And then he ran his car into a gated community, like the front gate, And then he abandoned his car there, and it was in my mom's name, so she went and picked up that car. And then he also, when he would come to California to stalk us, because he was living in Vegas too, because my mom and him got a house in Vegas, he would leave the dog there, leave it with food and water, and so the dog would get loose all the time in like the 100 degree heat in Vegas, Oh, my God. And get fevers and stuff. And then the dog ended up in the pound or like a lot. The neighbors would just put the dog back and tell my mom. So we ended up getting the dog from the pound, but we gave him like a few days to get it because we didn't want to poke the bear. And then we got the dog and I split custody with my mom over the dog because my mom traveled. And then I also worked at a dog kennel so I could bring the dog to work with me. So August... 19th he actually calls my work does a fake phone call I didn't know it was him until like after my attack 
because I was just trying to get him off the phone and he was trying to get my schedule. And so it worked in my benefit though, because the next day I had two no shows. And so I went home and got ready and then came back to work early. And so I was able to leave my work early that day. You were going to like a concert or something that day. Yes. Your mind is preoccupied. You've got weird prank calls the day before. You've got no shows at work. And then what goes on that day? So around 5.20-ish p.m., I leave my work. I leave my work early. It's like at least 30 minutes earlier than I would have been home, like probably 40 minutes earlier. So I get home. The gate's broken. The gate was broken like for a week. And I look over, I see my dog's just barking aggressively at this guy and he has a tire iron in his hand. And I look over, he's wearing a baseball cap and he just looks rugged. And I think it's just a homeless guy. So I park in my parking spot. I get out of my car and he grabs me by the waist and looks me in the eyes and says, do you remember me? (gasps) And so I immediately tried to run away from him. I am not able to disconnect from him. And so he starts, well, he starts trying to cover my mouth and I bite him as hard as I can. And he's just not able to cover my mouth whatsoever. So I think that's when he gets angrier and he starts what I thought was punching me. But I put my purse over my heart to protect itself and the vital organs, just not thinking, it's just automatic. And he started stabbing me, but I didn't know it was stabbing me. And the knife was also in a Del Taco bag. And so I ended up on the floor because I think I was just trying to still fight back and stuff. And You know, that's just like your body's just doing it automatically, but you're just not thinking. And then so I end up on my back and I hit my shoulder on the ground. And so I'm like, my legs are up. And then because I came from work, I was wearing rain boots as well. And so my dog is attacking his ankles and I'm kicking his forearms as the knife is coming down. And so I'm able to kick the knife out of his hand and then I pick up the knife and then I start just willing back at him because like you have to not give it too much thought. You have to just do. And so I, I thought I was stabbing him in the front of his chest, but it was in the back of his shoulders. And so I did, I believe like it was 13 total. So I did 11 back here. And then I did one in the forehead, but because I like was holding his head because I watched The Walking Dead and I was thinking like monkey see monkey do. So, you know, in The Walking Dead, like a zombie bites you, you turn into a zombie. So I was holding his head and then I did the last one into the eye, which is the softest point of entry to the brain, because like that's what you do in The Walking Dead to kill a zombie. You have to kill their brain. And so I took the knife out. Well, like it was just in and out. And so I took it out and I tossed it away from the body. I pushed him off of me and I started to just kind of assess the situation I noticed that I was bleeding from my forearm, so I started to apply pressure to that. And then I saw that my dog was eating the Del Taco, and that time a lady came up with her yellow lab and asked me, what can I do to help you? And I told her, please just grab my dog because I thought that Del Taco could be poison. And so she grabbed my dog, and then that's when other people started coming up and helping the situation And then the cops came. I called a few people in between. And then I went to the hospital. They interrogated me. And then I realized I was stabbed in the chest. And then they had to move me to the ICU to a different hospital. That was very traumatizing because they were just touching me all all over the place and, like, pricking me and everything. And then I was in the hospital for like two days because they had to do exploratory surgery to make sure I wasn't bleeding out. 
And then I went home <laughs> for the healing process. Oh my God. I mean, I, <laughs> I, wow. One second. I heard the podcast. I watched the show when it came out. I knew all of this, but hearing it directly from you is like a totally different experience. I, like your forethought to protect yourself, to grab the weapon, like to treat him like he was attacking you like a zombie. Like it is so wild. Like you did everything exactly perfectly 100% right. Thank you. Like just involuntarily. Yeah. I could imagine how unbelievably traumatizing this is. Thank you for sharing with us. Thank you. I know you've done a lot of work to be able to even share this story, which oh, Tara, if I didn't like just adore you already, oh my God, you are officially my most badass friend ever. Seriously. Like I am incredibly inspired by just your tenacity. Like you just knew what to do. And you saved your whole family from this horrific, torturous, nasty stalker of a man who had just tormented your family for years. Thank you. Well, it's kind of crazy because like after everything and after the show came out, I met other survivors of his in a sense. And I kind of honestly thought they had it way worse. Really? He would send people from jail to show up at their house to harass and threaten them and say that they were going to kill them. And I think like, you know, I don't know if those people tried because they're still alive, but just hearing those stories is just intense, you know, and he threatened to hurt little girls. Jesus Christ. I mean, you killed the boogeyman. You ended a lot of people's nightmares in that one split second. You are probably so many people's heroes that you don't even know. Well, thank you. I mean, wow. I just, you are, mm, I just, you, I adore you. So this leads into your healing journey. So let's talk about what your healing journey looked like. And then we'll get to the other side with ethical true crime and all of that. I'm assuming it took quite a bit of work for you to get through this to get to the place that you are today so let's talk about what that whatever you would like to share again I don't want you to share anything that you don't feel comfortable sharing it was a point where I had to, like I was so in shock at first and I wanted everyone to think I was okay <laughs> I didn't want people to worry about me so I was like I'm fine I'm okay and they're like you need therapy <laughs> <laughs> and I really took a lot of breakdowns. I would go out with friends all the time to the bars and I would drink a lot, but I also would go out and not drink too because I didn't want to be alone. And I really found like party friends, but I also like had one friend that was really there for me. She just liked to party at that time too. <laughs> And, you know, she came every single day after my attack when there was people that didn't believe me, told other people like, oh, Tara's crazy because I've had weird experiences with men, but everyone wants to blame the victim because sometimes the perpetrator is so cool and he's so charming and he's like such the life of the party. And, you know, not every perpetrator is that way, but like a good characteristic of like a narcissist is like a charming person yeah and you know they have to have many characteristics like the antisocial you know not having empathy towards someone but charismatic that is a big red flag right overly charming yeah like to the point where you're like you don't really need to lay it on that thick buddy <laughs> yes the love bombing that let me do this for you. But I mean, but then the weird snide little like locking you in the car, like that kind of stuff where you're like, he's clearly showing us who he really is in these little, <laughs> but then it's overshadowed by getting you coffee, exactly how you like it every single morning, being there, showing up, being that person. And then it's just all fed with lies, which the private investigator, like you said, uncovered. Yeah. And it's really hard when you're in like a cult of one or a relationship like this 
where you are being manipulated by this person and gaslit constantly. I mean, your poor mother, I could just imagine the back and forth and the teeter tottering battling between her children and her boyfriend and then eventually husband, the victim blaming too. Yeah. Well, and then it's really interesting too, because I was listening to the female brain. I forget who the author's name is, but she was mentioning how we're like trained to even go after that bad boy or that alpha male in a sense, because we're taught in our DNA that they're going to provide the most for us. They're going to get the most meat for us. If you're going back to like basic DNA. I always think about like the bad boy and in, in the like the trope of the girl like the Sandy from Greece like I can change him I'll be the one you know I'll be the one that he goes you know what I am gonna be a better man for them like, it is this really strange thing about wanting to be the one person that really could make the impact and change the bad boy turn the bad guy into the Prince Charming. Yes. It is a very interesting psychological thing. Let's talk about what ethical true crime is, because that was one thing, like, especially with Obsessed Fest and just the Obsessed team and Patrick and Jillian and how they sort of go about true crime and the way that they tell stories. And, and it is very victim forward, which I think is so important when you're telling people's stories here on Life After MLM, we talk to a lot of victims. Almost every episode, we have a victim. And I specifically name my episodes for the victim and not the MLM or the cult or the scam because it's their story. You know, there's different things and different elements in their story, but it's about them. And so that's why I name my episodes after the victims because I want to highlight the victims. Yeah. You know, it's the same. Like, even though you weren't the person that made and produced that podcast, that was your story out there in the show. Your story on the screen even was dramatized with Connie Britton and everybody. The same way that Lula Rich was my story on the screen and being able to see that and being able to have a national, international platform to tell your story in your words and say, this is what happened to me. I was a victim. Now I'm a survivor this is what happened. And it is so unbelievably powerful. It was one of the reasons I wanted to start a podcast so that I could give people even a percentage of that platform to be able to come on, to talk to somebody who gets it, who understands, to have a conversation, to get some healing, to feel like I got to tell my story. People actually cared enough to listen. They got something out of it. Maybe I changed their mind. Maybe I taught them something, whatever it is. Like that is something that is was so instrumental in my healing. Yeah. Be able to platform my story. Did you have a similar experience in being able to platform your story and tell your story on an international audience? I also think that's part of the healing process as well, because like, you know, I went through the drinking, <laughs> wanted to be out and social, but then I went through EMDR and therapy and all of that and other modalities. I had to like do all of that. And then realize like when you tell your story you're also releasing it and you're moving through it and so that is such a cathartic benefit of telling your story if you are in the place to tell your story I mean you know you can tell your story and be triggered also but if you don't have the tools you can't reset yourself after your story at least not for a few days you know when I say ethical true crime what does that mean to you so ethical true crime means that well it means like a multitude of things to like a lot of different people but it means to me that you're always asking the victim if you can use their story if you can involve them in their story what not if you have a production and you make a good amount of money on that production you know I get it if you're like an indie podcast or you're not having ads in your podcast or you're just not to that level like with Survivor Squad we only cover our overcost right now and so you know we can't give back to survivors yet we would love to but we need to take care of our all the costs of the podcast and what it took to make it so far <laughs> right. and then all the travel expenses now for like promoting our podcast and getting it out there and hoping that other people really get to hear survivor stories so I think it's really good to hear from the survivor 
if you can. But if a survivor says, like, don't touch my story, like, there's so many other true crime stories out there. Unfortunately, we have an influx. And then I think other things about ethical true crime is, like, you know, not showing certain photos, like having crime scene photos, you know, asking the victim how they feel about like, oh, can we put your attacker's name in the title and stuff? Because I understand times that gets more clickbaits. And so that gets more attention towards the survivor. And that's how I see it in my case, because I don't necessarily like Dirty John, that name, or really honestly, like, when people tell me that they have a Dirty John in their life, I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> you may think you do, but you do not have the dirty John I did. Maybe right. they do have like the similarities where he, he's threatening to kill them, domestic violence and all of that. And it just means that my case is my case. You know, you have a dirty blah, blah, blah. You could use the name dirty, but just don't call everyone a dirty John. So you talked about your podcast. You have a podcast now. Tell us where you are in your life. We're a few years out from this. You've spoken to the media. You have your story, like we said, on a national platform. People have connected with you. People have said, hey, this has happened to me or something similar has happened to me. Thank you for speaking out. You've gone through the therapy. You did your party girl phase. You worked through all the different levels of going through trauma, moving through trauma, getting through trauma. And you're on the other side of it now where you get to be a victim advocate, where you get to have this show, Survivor Squad. And you get to tell stories. Let's talk about your motivation for wanting to start this podcast. Well, I really wanted to start it because I wanted to like call your and I will call your came to me. And then I was like, I was thinking about the same thing. I really wanted to change the narrative because so many people go out and cover stories. And when I was doing the podcast research and we were trying to figure out like, well, we wanted to promote ethical true crime in the sense, but we were just trying to figure out what to do. Like, do we cover people's stories? Do we storytell? And then we figured out that was not for us at all because first of all, I suck at getting facts, right? <laughs> well, like in my case, I know what's up, but like if I'm telling you about another story, I'm going to butcher it and I'm going to own up to it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you, yes, I don't know if I said this correctly at all. Please look it up for yourself. Absolutely. Without a script, I'm like, I don't know. I think I'm pretty sure <laughs> <laughs> you might want to Google it, though, just to confirm I'm the same. Right. Like, you know, maybe he chopped off the first finger, the second finger. I'm like, third finger. I don't know. That's a bad example. We also have to let you guys know, and I think most people know, those of us that have been through trauma have very dark senses of humor. <laughs> yeah, no. And I was like hoping like the finger chopping wasn't going to be towards like death or someone unliving. So I'm like, maybe that's a bit more sensitive. I don't know. Well, like, I'm only saying this because it's CO2. <laughs> And well, here's the thing. It's like, we talk to survivors for a living, like all the time. And I mean... Sometimes the worst of the worst doesn't make it into the final cut of the show because sometimes I'm just like, yikes, I can't <laughs> produce that. Like, and so I've seen and heard a lot worse things that actually get produced. And I'm assuming it's probably very similar to you as well. Like there are some times where I start researching things and I'm like, oh, this is going to be a great bonus episode. And like 20 minutes into the research, I'm like, yeah, no, I can't tell this story. Like, nope, scrapped. I'm just going to find another because it's just too deep. It's just too much for me. Right. And then I also, you know, I take breaks as well, where I tell stories about other things aside from these specific stories, because it can be a lot. Yeah, no. And like, <laughs> I've done YouTube videos where I give my opinion. 
And people are like, you're not getting the facts right. And you know what? I'm not getting the facts right because I'm stating my opinion. So those are like, my opinions are not facts. <laughs> so how has it been with this podcast? You you do this podcast with your boyfriend, Collier Landry, who is also coming on the show. So we will tell his story in a future episode. But tell me what that's like. It's called Survivor Squad. And my episode's coming up. Yes. We're timing this all. We think ahead, y'all. And it's all timed. Don't worry. <laughs> but talk to me about not only just you and Collier coming to this, like, yes, we should do this, but what it's been like working together. It's been really great. You know, there are moments where you work with people and you're just like, you know, it really is helpful to have those conversations and move past those points because that also makes us both better interviewers. And, you know, if he's telling me something I need to work on, I can also tell him something he needs to work on. And we're newbies in the sense where we're working together. Well, not newbies anymore. But, you know, back then it was like we had to figure out the dynamic. And there's always going to be little issues that come up that you need to work through. You're just like, okay, well, you know, I need to get this set up so that it helps make the audio smoother. And you have to work through those and those help even build your relationship in such a great way. There's just no one that's ever been so empathetic and kind towards my trauma because he understands it in his own life. Right. So very thankful for that and then very thankful to connect with you and other survivors out there. Yeah, I am so thankful. Our stories are wildly different on two completely different ends of the spectrum of true crime. I'm on the true con white collar and you're on the other aspect of it. But like at the same, like when you strip down all of the details and you just talk about this manipulative abuse, there's so many commonalities and so many things that are exactly the same. Like there was a charismatic person that told me I should do things and I believed things and bought into things and ignored the people that loved me because this very charismatic person was telling me how great I was and how I was going to be a rock star. It's like very similar to your mom. She's not listening to you because this guy's so great. It's like, don't I deserve to have happiness? Like, can't I be, you know, I understand that. And it's just, it's very interesting again, because our stories are so unbelievably different, but there are so many intersections and commonalities in it that come into this really the the big umbrella of true crime. Yeah, well it's like these perpetrators have a regimen that they normally go by and that's called the trauma bonding effect. I think having conversations like this and dissecting events, we start to see like again, like I said, like these little things where people are like I don't have a dirty John, but I have a dirty whatever and they kind of did that similar thing too. It was like very similar to how I figured out that LuLaRoe was a cult was watching Leah Remini and Mike Rinder explain things. And I'm like, wait a second, that happened to me too. It's not the same. It's a completely different thing. But at the same time, like it's just similar enough that it was like, oh, like there's something connecting here. There's something I need to look a little deeper. Maybe this group I'm a part of isn't so squeaky clean after all. Maybe this business that I'm running isn't really a business. Maybe this man or woman that I think is really wonderful isn't all that they are cracked up to be. And it's just, it's the same manipulation cycles. In LA, you know, there's so many Scientologists. Oh my God. Right. When I lived in LA and I did hair in LA and I did a lot of like people that were in LA trying to make it as an actor. I did a lot of people's hair who had accidentally taken acting classes that turned out to be Scientology indoctrination meetings. Oh. And they would tell me stories like, oh, I went to an acting class at the Celebrity Center. It was really weird. And I never understood. And it was like the very first, like, that was back in the Tom Cruise couch jumping days. And I was like, what? This is so interesting. And then the more I've learned about Scientology, like, the more it's popped up everywhere in my life where I'm like, oh, it was always there. I just wasn't aware of it. Oh, Wow. Oh, I love this. I can imagine because you're in Orange County, right? Yes, but Collier lives in Santa Monica. Ah, yeah. So I lived and worked in Santa Monica area as well on the west side. Okay. 
And there were a lot of Scientologists, like surprisingly a lot of Scientologists on the West Side. Yeah. That you wouldn't have expected. It's very interesting. Well, and then Collier's met people that have good experiences. And then we met people that have bad experiences also, you know, in so many. And I think that's important to look at all the sides. I mean, I will talk to people. I'll have people that are like, hey, can I talk to you? I was actually in an MLM and I had a pretty good experience. Like I lost money. And like, yeah, you're right about what you said. But like the horror stories that you sometimes tell, like mine's so completely opposite of that. Can I share? And I always say yes, because if I'm going to tell a story and I'm going to narrate this story in my head that I have, like this is what MLM is. If I didn't talk to people that had good experiences or if I didn't talk to people that had different experiences, it's my own echo chamber. Like I need to also say, let's talk to this person that made a bunch of money and let's talk to them about what they did to do it and how they got there and how they felt about it. Because again, like at the end of the day, like these are scams and even the people that were successful are able to look back and go, well, yeah, I mean, I lied. Like I lied a lot to get here. And I had to pretend I wasn't lying to get here. Yeah. And it wasn't worth it. Yeah. I mean, I've lost money in Rodian and Fields. <gasps> I was going to ask you about your MLM experiences. <laughs> <laughs> but I was not a great salesperson. And then I also went to cosmetology school and they looked at everything that was in the products and they were like, everything is so strong for your skin. Like all the chemicals in here. Wow. And I was like, I don't want to promote it anymore. <laughs> How long did you last in Ronan and Fields? Well, I bought, I, you have to buy like the whole freaking kit. Oh, yes. You get the best deal if you buy the biggest kit. <laughs> and then I had like a mentor and stuff. And it's like, she's just like, probably selling her friends. She's, I wonder if she buys the stuff herself. And like, I don't know. She probably did well herself. Who knows? She probably got a lot of people to sign up under her. I have no idea how I even met her. (laughs) It's really surprising the way that people portray themselves and then like the factual reality of their situations. Right? It's very interesting. (laughs) It's like very much fake it till you make it culture. 100%. Oh, 100%. And you have to be really good at sales. Like you have to, you know, just get in there. And I am like, oh, it's all right. Mm, you don't want this. It's cool. And I was 19, too. So young, you know. MLMs try to get them when they're young before they, you know, figure it out, figure out what it is. There's so many MLMs that target not only children, but like teens or people that are like graduating high school and going into college, like student age. Yeah. Which I think is really disgusting. Who are they going to sell to also? Like they're in college yeah. and like they're going to go to the dorms and be like, yeah, this product is really great. We all need to stock up. And they're like, well, I'm budgeting this month because my mom and dad only gave me this amount, you know? Right. I'm like all these kids are on student loans, like eating at a cafeteria. And here you are knocking dorm room to dorm room being like, you want to buy $800 in skincare? <laughs> no, no I don't. You. Thanks, though. Yeah wild (laughs) and then i have like another friend that loves arabon oh arabon yeah yeah. but like she's hit me up like a few times and then she got the memo like i'm good like i'm not gonna hit up tara i'm gonna respect that boundary you know if tara really wants to get into it she will and you know what they do have some great like sizzler stick thingies i like that they're like organic the fizz sticks oh yes Fizz sticks, yeah. I, well, like she gives <laughs> me them sometimes, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's another thing that we talk about often is it's not usually the product, right? Like, there's all kinds of great products that MLM sells. There's even products that are like completely different companies that MLMs will partner with and sell like exclusively through the MLM to get people to join. Huh. And there's a reason that the products are good. It's because they want people to join the scam. And if you could only get that really amazing thing by joining the MLM, even if it's just for, you know, one month or whatever, then a lot of people are going to do it. Yeah. And then they're going to buy that kit and they're going to might as well get it when I have the discount if I'm only going to stay for a little. You know what I mean? Like it's so manipulative and it's all built in that 
I always joke and say, if the products were shitty, like all shitty and all crap, nobody would ever join because they're like, this is horrible. Like there has to be something of substance to get you to walk through the door. And a lot of times if it's not like the community, like all the instant friends you'll get, like, aren't you lonely? It will be, don't you need this amazing face scrubber? Don't you need this water filter? Don't you need this vacuum? Don't you need this lipstick? Whatever it is. Is Kagan... Oh, yes. Oh, it is? Kangen water is 100% an MLM. Yeah. Those really expensive water filters. I honestly love the filter, though. And I really want it, but I don't want to pay that much. And I don't like I was like, how do I get a collab? <laughs> you can't. You have to sell your soul, Tara. If you sell your soul to Kangen. And give them $5,000. That's how you get a water filter. Yeah, don't get one of those. There are better water filters. Oh, there are? Tell me about this. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me where to find a a good water filter. That's just what I want in my life. I had a faucet one. You did? I had one that like I replaced my faucet and it had a filter in it. And it was great. And I even tested it with like water strips. And it really filtered out all the city gunk out of the water. Okay. I don't know. I'll have to find it in like, maybe, I think it was Kohler or something. I don't know. I don't remember who it was. But there, I know that there are water filters out there that do not cost $5,000 and aren't a giant scam. So definitely save your money and stop putting Kangen water filter on your Christmas wish list. <laughs> well, I go to my mom's and I fill up from there. Oh, okay. Deborah has a Kangen water filter. Her physical <laughs> trainer got her. And I was like, this guy just is like, he doesn't really care. He's just like, oh, you need to pay like five sessions up front for my, you know what I mean? And I was like, no, he's like kind of take advantage of you, mom. I do like the water because of like all the functions too. Right. <laughs> I know. I've, but, but how real is that? I know they say like, oh, like you can use 2.5 water to wash your vegetables or whatever, or you can use this to like clean your carpet. But is it real? Is it real? Or is it all a gimmick? I feel like it's a gimmick. I buy into like the alkaline water because I used to throw up a lot and then I switched to alkaline water and I don't throw up as much. Okay. So it's more neutral, like like you have like acid reflux or something's more neutralizing. There's got to be a water filter that doesn't cost $5,000 that could help you. Someone listening is like, I know of one. Well, Collier has one that's like $35 on Amazon. It's just like a, a Brita, but it's alkaline. At that price, you can put one in every room. Then you don't even have to worry. You'll never not have water. Right? But I think you just have to change out the filter, you know, but that's it. Yeah. I should just do that. Totally. Just do that. Save your money. You don't need to waste it on magic water filters. They're not, I don't think it's real. Okay. I mean, I'm sure it alkalizes, but I don't think all the other stuff is, I think it's all hooey. I think it's all marketing hooey. I need to try the test where they like wash the strawberries and then I need to do it with regular water and see if it's the same. Yeah. It's probably the same. Well, okay. Yeah. I think it probably is. I don't know. I've never tried it, but I don't know. I don't know. I just, from what I've seen, I think it's just all a bunch of hogwash. Yeah. (laughs) So I need to do more research. (laughs) I know when we go camping, we can have this conversation. We'll figure it out then. We'll figure it out. What's going on with Kate? Of course, right? I want to say thank you so much for coming and being so vulnerable and telling so much of your story. I know how difficult it is to tell the story over and over again, whether or not it's traumatic. I just I understand what it feels like to have to tell your story over and over again to new people. And so I really appreciate you coming and sharing that with us. I think you're a total badass. I'm sure most people are like, yeah, yes. And in the zombie apocalypse, you're definitely 100 percent on my team. Like, 100%. Yes. Like, if you have any more of those Lulu Rose, we could, like, make a terrible bonfire or something. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And then light them on fire so it distracts the zombies. Oh. I'm thinking of creative ways for this. Yeah. 
or strip use it as a like for molotov cocktails it'd be a good strip inside the bottle maybe i don't know let's hope we never have to find out (laughs) at the very end of my chats i like to do some rapid fire questions okay we're gonna talk about true crime are you ready sure i hope i know this (laughs) Give me a word that encompasses how you feel about the true crime space. I want to say problematic. There's a lot of problematic true crime out there. Absolutely. I agree with you. What is a warning to somebody who maybe is seeing the same red flags that you were seeing, whether it's a relationship that they're in or a relationship that someone that they love is in? What is a warning that you can give to them when they start seeing those red flags in somebody? Plan your get out. Because you need to be careful when you get out with these people. I believe it's it's just crazy how many women get murdered when they leave. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, that's excellent. But you saying prepare your exit strategy is your sort of warning to heed for people who may be in relationships like this, I think is something I didn't expect for you to say. But 100% I agree with you. Yeah, I want people to be careful. (laughs) Yeah. What do you think is the most problematic aspect of the true crime space? I think it's the, oh, there's so many. I think it's the not consent. What is the hardest lesson that you learned going through this entire ordeal? I, I don't know if like the lessons were hard, but necessarily it was hard going through the healing at times but then you always realize you bounce back and you get better and to end it on a positive note give me a positive takeaway from this horrible ordeal a positive takeaway is that I am able to relate with so many women and they can relate with me and that gets them out of relationships because it creates the awareness that their relationship might not be okay Amazing. And then lastly, before we end, I just anything that you want to say to anybody who might be listening, who is thinking, oh, my gosh, I think I'm in a relationship with a dirty person like this. Give me like maybe one or two things that they should do first and foremost, aside from plan their exit strategy. First is the awareness. So educating, but also putting your trust in a safe person. Someone that you know is not going to go to that person and tell them what you said, but it's going to keep everything, you know, secret and going to respect you. Really confide in that one person. If you don't even have a person, call the National Abuse Hotline number. They will talk you through the steps. You don't have to plan anything. You could just talk to them. So that's so important to just have one person. Then, you know, plan your get outs, educate yourself, teach yourself good coping mechanisms, deep belly breathing, get like a vice, like a good vice, like yoga or working out something. You know, you don't want to pick up drinking as a vice. Like I tried and did that and now I'm done. (laughs) I don't drink anymore. So find your healthy vices and create a routine. Like we were talking to Tana Amen. Her husband's like a brain doctor and she's a RN and she is one of the CEOs of that foundation. It's so important to build routines even for your brain because that will help stabilize you and it will help like build your brain matter. And you also like Another thing, you want to stay away from like going to all the junk foods during this time too because that's going to feed your gut and so that can actually make you feel worse, you know, and that's why people that suffer from trauma also have stomach issues too aside from the trauma is because during that time where we crave certain things or we can crave certain things because we want like that high and low effect. And unfortunately, that doesn't do so great for our gut health. And then our gut carries so many cells in our stomachs more so than our brains. And so we really need to align that. Thank you so much for coming on, Tara. You are so wonderful sharing your story and helping those who are listening maybe 
make some connections or start planning their exit. I'm going to link all of the abuse hotline, the numbers and the websites and all of that in the show notes. So if anybody needs a resource quickly, you can find them there. Thank you again, Tara. You are, I adore you so much. Thank you so much. I adore you. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast or visit our new website at lifeaftermlmpod.com. You can find all of the links to follow in our show notes. Life After MLM is produced by Roberta Blevins. Audio editing is done by the lovely Kayla Craven. Video editing by the indescribable RK Gold. And Michelle Carpenter is our triple emerald princess of robots. If you have a story about a cult, fraud, scam, or MLM and want to be on the show, please hit us up. We would love to help you tell your story and start your healing journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Hans.